Well, good morning. It's a privilege to address you and be here and get, get to know your church a little bit, and I appreciate that. And uh, Yes, I am from New England, a New England fan, and uh, had the privilege of going up to Yosemite, and it seemed that every ranger had been briefed that Yosemite is larger than Rhode Island. And uh, I looked it up and no, actually Rhode Island is 12 square miles larger. So, uh, but anyway, still uh, about the same. So it's a privilege to, uh, to talk with you. I'd love to meet you tonight, come back and, uh, or talk with you afterwards. Well, you may not know his name, but you probably know his face. On October 23rd, 2022, Michael McGuire, Uh, got off work and rushed to take his son to a basketball game. Nothing unusual about that, except Michael McGuire works in a coal mine. And so because he had to rush to take his son to a University of Kentucky game, he did not have time to change or wash up. Someone saw him and took a picture, and that picture made its way to John Calipari, the Kentucky's men's basketball coach. And he was moved by the image and ended up giving him VIP tickets. He said, when he saw the photo, it hit him right between the eyes. He said, my family's American dream started in a Clarksburg, West Virginia coal mine. So that picture hit home. You see, Michael McGuire's actions displayed love to a watching world. And this morning, we're going to look at a passage that shows how your church and your family can bring glory to God, can display the glory of God to the watching world in a similar way. So the passage comes out of John 13. We're going to look at some instructions, instructions on love that Jesus had for his disciples, the context is this is Jesus' final night with his disciples. He's about to be betrayed. And Judas has left the room to betray Jesus, and so now the final events are in motion. Jesus is with his true disciples, and he's free to address them. And what does he say? Let me read the text again. When he had gone out now, talking about Judas, Jesus says, said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I'm with you, and you'll seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give you, love one another. Just as I have loved you, so you are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. My main point this morning is really simple, is that God's hidden glory is shown to the world through the cross and through his people. God's hidden glory is shown to the world through his cross, through the cross, and through his people. Let me just pray for our time. Father, would you open our eyes that we might see wonderful things in your word. Open the eyes of our heart, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
First point really flows right out of those first verses. The triune God is glorified in the cross. Now the events of the betrayal are starting. It's in motion. And what does Jesus say? He says, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. What does that mean? You know, I think we use the word glory, and sometimes we don't know what it means. It's, the words glory is used a lot in the Scripture. And one of the reasons I think that we may, have, uh, we may struggle with understanding is it's used in at least three different ways, maybe more, but at least three. The first way it's used, the word glory, is the inherent worth or brilliance or splendor of something. So God is glorious. God has majest is, is majestic and perfect. I call it glory-owned. There's inherent in him. But it's not only that, it's also glory seen. It's when glory comes out, the manifestation of that greatness. And then thirdly, we also use that word often in, in, in songs where we express that greatness, glory given. So glory owned, glory seen, and glory given. Now, you say, oh, that's a religious word, a religious concept. No, actually, we do this all the time as people. So, for example, let's, let's use this on a human level. And since I'm not, not in New England, but in, and I'm out west, Joe Montana was a great quarterback, right? Yes. He, was, he was a great quarterback. And people delighted to go and see him display that greatness. He was great. He displayed that greatness on the field. And then what do we like to do? We like to talk about that greatness. So glory owned, glory seen, and then glory given. And so the Bible talks, uses both of those, uses the word glory in all three different ways. God has great glory. And one day we will see that glory. But right now, much of that glory, that greatness is veiled or hidden. We can see it at different places. So scripture says the heavens proclaim the glory of God. Thursday, I uh, just had a chance, appreciate uh, Justin, but the Yorks um, took me up to Yosemite. And truly, you know, creation does display the glory of God. When I stood in front of El Capitan and just was so small, it was so great. My mouth was stopped. And yet, and yet, that is, that is just a tiny speck of understanding God's glory. We see God's glory in the incarnation, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. Jesus had pre-incarnate glory. But then when he came to earth, that glory was hidden. We saw moments, whether it was the transfiguration or the miracles where, where, the, where the glory breaks through like the sun through the clouds, but then it's hidden. And for many people, Jesus of Nazareth was just a carpenter. They'd walk out, if, if he walked in here, shake his hand. He's just a man, even though every so often we would see his glory. But Jesus comes and says, now in the moment of the betrayal, the crucifixion, ultimately the resurrection and the ascension, you are going to see the glory of God. 
This moment, you're gonna see the greatness of God, the greatness of the Son of Man, the greatness of God, the Father. God will glorify him by raising him up and enthroning him in heaven. Say, how can you see that? Because in the shame of the cross, we see the justice of God and the love of God come together. God, who is completely just, he cannot let sin go at all, or he's unjust. So God is completely just, and yet he punishes sin, how? In himself, his own son. What other God does that? You want to understand God's glory? You can look at El Capitan, but you need to meditate hard and long on the glories of the cross and the resurrection and the ascension. Whether you have been a Christian a day or 80 years, there's more to understand about the glory of God in the cross and in the resurrection. So we want to gaze long and hard at the glories, at the greatness of the cross. We want to meditate on these acts. Jerry Bridges said it this way, if you want proof of God's love for us, then we must look first at the cross where God offered up his son as a sacrifice for sins. Romans 8, while we were still sinners, God proved his love for us. If you're here, you're not a follower of Christ, I know this church is welcoming and wants you to come and ask questions and listen and learn. But you need to understand that Jesus says the central event of history is his death and resurrection. You, if you wanna understand God, you need to understand the cross and the resurrection of Christ. God's greatness is hidden from our eyes in many ways, but those events show off how great our God is. But then if you're following along in the text, Jesus abruptly shifts gears. Or does he? He's been talking about how the cross is gonna glorify the triune God, and now he talks about, he talks about his disciples. His, what are his people to do while he's gone, while his disciples are gone? And that brings us to the second point, which is this. The triune God is glorified in the love of the disciples for one another in the world. The triune God is glorified, put on display, seen, not only in the cross, but also, to a lesser degree, in the love of his people. Jesus' command, you see that right there in verse 34? A new commandment I give to you that you love one another, just as I have loved you, so also you are to love one another. By this, all peoples in this area will know that you're Jesus' disciples. How? If you have love one another. As a follower of Christ, we are so loved. God has put his spirit of love within us. And now, love one another. So simple and yet so hard to put into practice. 22 times the command to love one another is repeated in the New Testament. And then the, the other times, there are other one another's which are, which are really just facets 
of the diamond of love one another. Encourage one another, show hospitality to one another, welcome one another, accept one another, admonish one another. All those are just different facets of the diamond. Love one another. The preeminent command is to love one another. First John 4, 11 to 12 says, Beloved, if God so loved us, so we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God But if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. It's a mark of salvation. First first John 3, 14 says, we know we pass from life to death. How? Because we love the brothers. There's a church tradition that said that when John was an old man in Ephesus, he had to be carried into the church in the arms of his disciples. And at these meetings, he was accustomed to saying no more than this. Little children, love one another. After a time, the disciples were wearied at always hearing the same words, asking, Master, why do you always say this? And his response was, it is the Lord's command, and if this alone be done, it is enough. Love one another. Why is this so important? Well, it has to do with the nature of sin. So yes, sin is law-breaking against God's law, but, but it's also, Augustine talked about how sin causes us to curve in on ourselves. I have a friend who has a debilitating uh, arthritis, and it's causing her physically to curl in on herself. We are born that way. That's what sin causes us to do. It causes us to curl in on ourselves. Hang on to that understanding. It's going to be important as we go along. Why does Jesus, though, say this command is new? But for example, Leviticus 19.18 says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. When Jesus was asked the greatest commandment, he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So why does he say it's new? Well, there's three things that are new. If you're taking notes, this is sort of subpoints of number two, but three things that are new about it. First, it's a new standard. As I have loved you, so you're supposed, you are to love one another. It's not love your neighbors yourself. It's as Jesus has loved us. Sacrificial love, self-crucifying love, wise love, humble love, foot-washing love. Love one another. It's a new standard. Not only that, it's a new priority. There are eight billion people in the world. Who, who am I, what am I supposed to do? Jesus said that we are to put priority on disciples. Disciples are to love disciples. Paul expressed the same idea in Galatians 6.10 when he said, he said these words, uh, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially the household of faith. As much good as we can do to the world, we want to do, but especially those who belong to the Lord. So it gives you a new priority. Love can manage multiple priorities. Not only that, it gives us a new result. Jesus said, all men will know you're my disciples. How? Because you have the right answer? Truth is important. I'm not saying that. But what he's saying is that As we love one another, the world will know we're his disciples. The love 
runs around intellectual barriers. Francis Schaeffer said this, we must never forget that the final apologetic which Jesus gives is the observable love of true Christians for true Christians. An early church father, Tertullian, said, just said that the Romans would say, see how they love one another. The love of believers for believers. Let me just give you three, three applications that, may, that come out of this passage. One, if you're not a Christian, I know you're welcome here. I know that. And there may be events that attract a crowd around here. In each of these events, you'll find a crowd that's attending in a shadow of friendliness. But only in a healthy church of Jesus Christ will you find supernatural love for God and supernatural love for people who in other ways are very different, not like us. So as you repent of your sins and trust Christ, he'll give you supernatural forgiveness and supernatural love. Come back. But if you're already a follower of Christ, then I have a question that just flows right out of this text. Who is your biggest challenge to love? No elbowing your husband or uh, uh, teens or teens elbowing your parents. Just think about that in your mind. Who is your biggest challenge to love? We will be challenged beyond our natural ability to love until we die. You, say, you think, well, if I'm hurt, you, well, if you're hurt, you put up walls so people can't hurt you. But you know what? You can't love others through those walls either. So ask God to fill you with the love of Christ for people who have hurt you, who are hard to love. Sometimes we have to apply Jesus' words of loving our enemies. You know, sometimes I think we think of that verse where Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you and say, okay, yeah, if someone is, comes and puts a gun to my head, I'm gonna, I'm gonna not, I'm gonna testify that I'm a Christian. I'm not gonna back down. That's when I'm supposed to love my enemies. Now, sometimes it's little things like loving this person who's really hard to love at work. Annoying, cutting, painful at work. Functionally, a person who's hurt us so much that it really feels like they're our enemy. So who, are, who is your biggest challenge to love right now? And a third way, a third application might be that you pray Philippians 1. Paul prayed for Philippians. He said, this is my prayer for you, that your love would abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. So Paul's saying, I am praying for you, Philippian church, that you're going to be more loving and it's going to be wiser love as well. Because sometimes love forgives and encourages. Sometimes, Revelation 3.19, Jesus said, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Sometimes love rebukes. Sometimes it encourages, sometimes it rebukes. We need wisdom to know I need more love, but then how in this situation do I apply that love? So praying more for love and more wisdom. Let me pivot now and apply this really to a smaller, smaller group and, and uh, as Pastor Logan said, my heart is for family ministry, thinking about how does the gospel apply in that smaller unit. And uh, happy to talk with you 
uh, at the book table or, or in my uh, or tonight. But the third point is, is simple. The triune God is glorified in your love for one another in your family. Now, let me just give a sidebar here before I start, or uh, to start thinking about singles. Maybe you're young and single, or you're older and single, and there's not an immediate family. There are applications for you as you listen, as we talk about this. Maybe you have roommates, or maybe you'll be in a family later. Maybe there's some extended brokenness. Uh, or even broken family. So let's think about how does this apply to our family? Living the gospel in the home is a beautiful and difficult calling. Let me read these verses again in John 13, but as I go through them, I don't want you to think about the church context. I want you to think about your family. I give you a new command, love one another. Just as I have loved you, so you also are to love one another. By this, everyone will know you're my disciples if you love one another. See, the biological family was meant to be the foundation of God's plan. We know the story of Adam and Eve in the garden. They were the king and queen ruling over, but they were also your and my great, 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 great grandparents. We descend from them. They were a family. But because of passivity in Adam and sin in Eve, as a result, sin has affected all the relationships since then, including the family. I mean, as families are created, sin is in the mix. After all, what is a family? One sinner marries another sinner and produces other little sinners. So I... My, at one point, I thought about writing theologically correct greeting cards, and my wife said, I don't think that'll fly. <laughs> oh, congratulations on your new little sinner. <laughs> that explains, though, why if you've grown up in a family deeply affected by sins, there, sin, there can be deep wounds and deep scars. What God meant for good has, has hurt you. Perhaps there's secrets of abuse you've never told anyone. Do you believe that God's ability to heal and restore is infinitely greater than any parent's ability to tear down and destroy? By the grace of Christ, the answer to that is yes. Should be an encouraging yes. Well, how do we, how do we apply this in our family? I'm gonna give you four different ways that we can apply this in our family, and some of these come from the, the book, The Disciple-Making Parent, but here's some. Number one, we want to parent or love our homes with Jesus in mind. From God's perspective, family is not ultimate. Jesus and his kingdom is. We live in a world, a child-centered world that worships and idolizes the family, maybe because of pain growing up. But Jesus said, your family is an important but not exclusive priority. Matthew 12 Whoever loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, Jesus said. Like concentric circles, my first priority is to walk closely with the Lord. Then with my spouse, if I'm married. My children come after that, and then my church family in the world. All of those are priorities. So I don't get to eliminate one and go, well, that's it. So all those are priorities, but we need to keep them in order. As my children realize I love Jesus more than them, 
they'll realize their place in the order of the universe. Every child thinks that they are the center of the universe. Jesus is the center of the universe. I remember thinking as my kids were young, loving them, doing lots of stuff for them, but also thinking, I want my children to know that I live for something bigger than them. So having these priorities in order will keep us from being child-centered. So we, we wanna love our homes or parent with Jesus in mind. A second application is we wanna parent or love our homes with God's glory in mind. God intends our home to display his Trinitarian glory. If you're single, one of the ways you display God to the world is you battle the, the loneliness because you know you are living to please the Lord. There's gonna be no marriage in heaven. So you are, you're, you're, Paul says you can be more devoted because you don't have, you're not having to worry about a spouse. So that's one way you glorify God if you're single. The way if you're married, one way you glorify the Lord or with children is that our home is a picture of the Trinity. You wanna be a family that loves one another, that respects, that is joyful. The family community is a tiny reflection of the community of the Trinity. Let, let, let Tim Keller help, help us this, think about the, the Trinity and then it, it, we apply it to both the church and our family. The world was created by a God who was not created by a God who's only an individual or the emanation of impersonal force. We believe the world was made by a God who is a community of persons who've loved each other from all eternity. You were made, you and I were made for mutually self-giving, others-directed love. Self-centeredness destroys the fabric of what God has made. See, remember this idea of sin causing us to curve in on ourselves. We are made to love God and to love others. And so as we train our kids and as we grow that way ourselves, we are displaying God. The, just God's Trinitarian glory. A third application is we want to parent with eternity in mind. God has not just given you a baby to raise. He's given you an eternal soul to influence. We are preparing them not only for the graduation day, but for the judgment day. We want to make the Great Commission the North Star of our parenting. And that's really helpful if we're, we're, we're in the weeds of parenting. So, you know, the Great Commission, that we're to go and make disciples. And so as a church, no doubt you support people who are uh, overseas, but also you're reaching out in your community, but also you reach out across the dining room table. God's given you these little disciples that you get to influence. And you want to influence them for the Lord. And that should that vision should guide if you're in the weeds of parenting. The story is told of three man, men who were stone cutters. Uh, a fourth man walked by and asked, what are you doing? And one man said, just, just making a living. Second man said, just cutting some stone. Third man said, I'm building a cathedral to the glory of God. Same activity, different vision. Moms and dads, God has given you little children so that we can influence them to become fully devoted followers of Christ. It is messy, it is frustrating, 
but is ultimately profoundly glorious work. God has designed you to be the greatest spiritual influence on them. And though we cannot give spiritual life to our children, and we're not ultimately responsible for their choices, discipling them is one of the greatest privileges we can have. So we want to parent with eternity in mind. But if we're honest, living in the home can be one of the most challenging places to live out the gospel, right? Things we don't say to anybody else, we say at home. Anger that we hide from others spills over to our spouse. Laziness that doesn't uh, seem obvious is obvious to our family. You might be like, we're a mess. We just yelled at our kids getting them here today. Sunday can be very challenging. So one application is we want to parent, the fourth point here is with holiness in mind. You see, God has designed the family not only to give us happiness, but to also make us holy. Nobody reveals the idols of my heart like my family. I can't tell you how many times, my, you know, my wife is my soulmate. She is, but that doesn't stop us from having times of, shall we say, intense fellowship. <laughs> it's work, it's work. We were on a marriage panel and we were the oldest couple, and the first couple is like, oh, we never fight, we love each other. Middle couple, we never fight, we love each other. And Sharon looking going, I think this is why they have us up here. <laughs> we're representing 75, the other 75%. So it's tough. But yet, if I take responsibility for my actions and my reactions, there have been times when I've had to go to 1 Corinthians 13 and say, study it, love is patient. Chap, were you patient? No. Confess that. Love is kind. Were you kind? No. Confess that. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable. Were you irritable? Yes, I was. I'm responsible for my actions and my reactions. What God is doing is showing me my own heart through this person and little people who live in my house. You know, as a single person, I thought I was really spiritual. People tell me I've got to study on anger. Dads will say to me, I never thought I had a problem with anger until I had kids. That sin was there. We just didn't realize it. God's given them for our holiness, to train our heart. God is using the daily grind and my micro choices to train my heart to love him and to love my nearest neighbor, to love my enemies. I don't know if you know the, remember the original Karate Kid, right? Daniel asks Mr. Miyagi to train him in karate. And so what does Miyagi do? He assigns him mundane work. Wax my collection of antique cars. Paint my fence. Sand my floors. When the exhausted Daniel vents his complaint, Miyagi reveals how each mundane chore was invisibly preparing him for karate greatness. God does the same thing. You live life in the mundane. Wax the cars, paint the fence, sand the floors, and the next thing you know, God is working in your character to train you to be like his son. 
your husband, your wife, your children, your in-laws, your nearest neighbors that Christ has called you to love, and he's training you to become more like him in the rough and tumble of family life, if you'll be aware of it, if you'll own your own sin, if you'll repent yourself and say, no matter what she does, I'm gonna become like Jesus. No matter what he does, I'm gonna become like Jesus. The triune God has his greatness displayed for all to see in the cross. The triune God has his greatness for all to see in a loving church. We're on mission together to show that love to the world. And the triune God is also has his glory displayed in a loving family. I pray that that would be a mission of your family, a mission of this church. On October 23rd, 2022, Michael McGuire showed the world what love looked like, and the world took notice. As we tell of the greatness of the cross and show them the love of the community, the world may see also part of the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord, we cannot fathom your glory, your greatness, your holiness, your power, your might. One day we will be in glory, seeing your glory. Would you expand our understanding of that greatness, of that majesty? Thank you, Lord, for revealing part of that in the cross, in the resurrection. Lord, take us deeper into the glories of the cross. And I pray for us as well. Would you, I know there are people in our lives that are hard to love, difficult to love, and yet would you, by your supernatural power, give us strength to love them, to show off the glory of Christ. We pray in Christ's name, amen.